0: Hello and welcome to the Second Tier Podcast. I'm Ryan Dilks and I'm joined by the Preston at home to my Preston away. It's Justin Peach.
1: Good day to you, Ryan. Justin, how are you? I'm, uh, I'm very good, thank you. It's, it's, not, it's been a quiet weekend. I've not gone to a derby game this weekend. It's, it's been a nice and chill one, but I think there's a lot of goals over the championship uh, fixtures this week, which has kept me quite entertained and busy. Well, that's
0: always good to hear, Justin. You'll be glad to know we're going to be talking about it for the next hour. On the show this week, we're joined by Alistair Jones from Action for Albion, who are protesting against the ownership of West Brom. Alistair, how are you? Afternoon, lads. Thanks for having me on. No problem, mate. No problem at all. Welcome to the number one championship podcast, the second tier. Thank you for joining us wherever you are. We've got you on the show, Alistair, to talk about the protests and what's going on behind the scenes, because I think it's important we shine as much of a light on this as possible until something changes. So we'll have a quick chat about that. We'll go through all the games in the Championship this weekend, talk about the sacking of Mark Hudson at Cardiff and all the latest transfer news before finishing off with the return of Simon Grayson's hateful eight right at the end. So let's talk football first, Alistair West Brom have now won nine of their last 10, the latest coming away at Luton. The Albion came from 2-0 down to win 3-2, but they've got the taste for three points at the minute, haven't they? They're just dominant under Carlos scorebrand aren't they
2: it's incredible I mean the turnaround as I say I don't I, we'd like to think it's action for Albion because um it's obviously not It's probably more to do with Carlos Corbran's uh, efforts than action for Albion but since we started the protest group 10 12 weeks ago we were bottom of the league uh, we couldn't score a goal and now we score we've won nine out of ten games we don't look like conceding. we look like winning every game we play it, it's Incredible. And I think, I mean, in all seriousness, I think home games, especially some of the process that we've done have actually galvanised the fan base because we've made it very clear that you support the team, not the board from the outset. So, I mean, we, it's not the guy's fault at all on the pitch and the coaching staff. So we made that abundantly clear in our message to, to the fan base to get across that we will always support the team. In everything we do. And I think that helps. I mean, we've I think we've scored in the last four games. We, we do a shine a light protest sort of thing, which is basically get everyone to put the torch lights on in the 12th mm. minute of the game. But obviously in the light in, in, the, in the afternoon games, it's the second half that we do it. Because it's darker and it, it makes more of a show when it's darker. And I think we scored in the last three games. We scored in or you know, around the 57th minute at all, <laughs> where the lights have gone on, which is really weird. But as I say, I think it's got more to do with Carlos Corberan than it has to do with Action for Albion. The the upturning form, it's just incredible. We just, as I say, these same players. I think we got hoodwinked as a fan base to thinking it was the players weren't good enough. I think it's just basically
0: we've had two really crap managers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Corbrand doing a top job, into and West Brom. We've now moved into the top six with this result, which is actually pretty crazy, isn't it, Justin? When right. Carlos Corbrand took over with West Brom in the bottom three. And just a couple of weeks ago, you were umming and ahhing about whether West Brom will finish in the playoffs,
1: Justin. Is that still the case? I don't think so. No, I think they are. I think the only reason why I was um, slightly hesitant was just because I'm always skeptical of the new manager bounce. But I think Carlos Corbran, especially with this game, coming from 2-0 down against Luton, who are a very good outfit, a very good attacking tie, coming from 2-0 down to overturn that. And the quality of the goals as well were were, were brilliant. Um, yeah. Corbrand's ability to work the finer details in games, I think is just One of the best in the Championship, and I think we saw it with Huddersfield last season, but now he's got a group of players who are just as good as they are. I think we're really seeing how good Colbran is as a coach, as well as the potential with this West Brom team.
2: It's worth mentioning, guys, as well, just quickly, that um, there's there's an unbelievable stat that before we won at Sunderland on the return uh, from the World Cup, the last time we won a game from coming from behind was 50-odd games ago. And then before that is when we beat Chelsea at Stamford Bridge in the Premier League. So we've only won two games from coming from behind in over 120, which Jesus. is mental. And oh, we've done oh, that cool. now twice in a month. Um, so the, obviously he's fed some belief, uh, belief and resilience into the team and
0: it's just night and day the, the difference is incredible. Well, it's a mindset thing isn't it and i think that's what core, core brands changed whereas before the confidence was just so low and dreaming of turning around a deficit was just not going to yeah. happen under steve bruce for example was it let's talk shop then alistair we've covered all the problems at west brom recently and had kira maguire on last week to explain yes. why it's so troubling Tell us about the protests and what you've got planned in the near future then.
2: Yeah, first and foremost, Action for Albion will always be legal, peaceful and above board in everything that we do. We will not be an angry mob. You won't get the scenes that unfortunately we've seen over the weekend at other clubs. It's just not what we want to do. Um, and we made that abundantly clear. That's not to say that they're doing anything wrong. That's entirely up to them. It's just that's not the vehicle we want to go down. Action for Albion is all about trying to get, um, that media interest which we've successfully achieved and protesting in a peaceful way so we've done things like shine a light which we still continue to do um we did a white paper protest because obviously we have links with um our ownership is based in china so we thought we'd get something that was pertinent to a chinese protest so we've done that we've done uh, other things we've got uh, we had a a protest outside the Halford's Lane stand last week after the Reading game, which was really well received. I think we had about three and a half, four thousand fans turn up for that, which was incredible, really. We're really, really proud of that. Uh, and then this Tuesday, the replay in the cup. What we've tried to do, because we can take advantage of the season ticket holders having to buy a ticket, we've asked everybody that wants to be part of action for Albion to join us in the Woodman Corner, which is uh, on the corner of the Birmingham Road end, which is uh, quite a quite a nostalgic sort of corner where where the where the, the throstle used to be, like it used to be housed, and there was a pub called the Woodman. So we just, uh, in the, the, it's called getting our corner, and it's a, a sit together event that we're all trying to get sit together, and we'll peacefully protest, but also get get right behind the team during the, for the whole 90 minutes and and that's the sort of actions that we're trying to do. We're trying to think outside the box and be a little bit different to any other organisation and that seems to have got us quite a lot of traction. I've, as you mentioned, Kieran Maguire has very kindly uh, had me on the Price of Football kind of um, Podcast as well, and uh, and we're getting our message out there. I've been on, I mean, I, I've been on talk TV. I've got a face for radio. That's that's a, fair, that's a definite. <laughs> um, we've been on talk TV. We've been on the local radio. We've been on national radio. So we are getting a coverage out there because we've got a lot of our journalists, investigative journalists, working on this. And one of them said to me, and his words were, "This is the biggest untold story in football." So we know. That there is a huge problem, but it's not just West Brom, it's the governance of football as a whole, it's something has got to change in the governance of football because there's too many hard luck stories it can't be just bad luck there's something fundamentally wrong with the way that people are in the football clubs in this country and that's something that we as Action for Albion want to be at the forefront of as well not just being selfishly about West Bromwich Albion, which is obviously very important, but across the football spectrum and the pyramid as well, that's really important that football fans unify and say, look, we've got a problem here. Um, And that's some of the work that we're
0: going to carry on and try to get involved with as well. Do you get the sense that the protests are working, that they're being noticed by the hierarchy? Well, the good news is we
2: offered an Olive Branch, as I say, the way that we've done it is sensible. Uh, And we put an open email out to Ian Skidmore, who's the Director of Communications at West Brom, and Ron Gourlay. We were due to meet on Friday, actually, but unfortunately they both got sent home on Wednesday with the flu. Um, So that's been rescheduled for Tuesday before the Chesterfield game. So myself and a a couple of members of our committee will be meeting Ron and Ian to sit down. At the end of the day, the last thing we want is to be, especially when it's such a special season as potentially this one, is to have fallings out between the clubs. So we're trying to be grown up and sensible and know that we want what's best for West Brom and I believe the employees of the football club do, it's the hierarchy above them that the problem are with. But that doesn't mean that we can't communicate with people that have got a deep-rooted affection for West Brom who work at the club.
0: Justin, we've spoken loads recently about what's going on at West Brom and with you, of course, being a Derby fan. And I imagine you're getting flashbacks with some of the stories we're hearing coming out of the Hawthorns.
1: Yeah, it's, it's it's a frustrating one from my perspective, obviously, living through it last season, I know the circumstances at West Brom aren't as severe as they were at Derby, but, you know, from experience, it, it, it is that sort of route. It is, a, it is a similar route. It is a similar path. And unfortunately, um, as Alistair was alluded to, unless gov- governance changes and uh, adapts and improves, there are going to be more cases like this. Again, Alistair made a really good point about hard-look stories. This isn't just bad luck. These are clubs that aren't run appropriately. And unfortunately, I think from my perspective, it's not good enough from an owner to just be putting money into football clubs anymore. They have to have open dialogue. They have to have transparency. They have to have a relationship with supporters because at the end of the day, you know, supporters are the reason why football clubs exist, not because of owners. Well, yeah, sorry, sorry to put in,
2: guys. I just wanted to talk to you, Justin, about this. Obviously, is very important. We've reached out to people at Derby, some uh, of the fan base, and they've been really helpful. So thanks very much for that. Football fans are brilliant, I think, in this mm. country. Uh, and and they do talk to each other. And there's some guys at, at Derby and at Blues that have been absolutely brilliant with regards to this. You say it's a bit different. We're not far off. We've had to borrow £20 million from MSD, which is, as we said off there, the wonga the of football finance, it seems to be, at a ridiculous interest rate um, mm-hmm. to borrow to, to survive. And, and they've actually said that. It's due for the day-to-day running of the football club. So, as I say, we've mortgaged the football club to buy the groceries, essentially, which, which can't be right. After 20 years, don't forget, West Brom have got 20 years of consecutive uh, Premier League money. That's both in whether it be parachute payments or participation. We haven't not had payments of Premier League since 2002, guys. So that just put that into context, mm-hmm. that we've had the land of milk and honey money, as Mr. Jordan says, for 20 years, and now we're having to borrow £20 million to survive there's no, there's something fundamentally yeah. wrong with what's gone on there. And as I say, I think there's a lot more to it than the £12 million that we know, factually, that has gone out of our football club.
0: Alistair, what's your worst fear then over the future of West Brom and how likely a scenario do you think it is that your worst fear comes true?
2: OK, it's a very difficult question to answer, honestly. Um, so, no, let me get this right. The £20 million loan, I actually think, and we believe, that Rangole... Uh, who's the CEO who has had a fair amount of stick? We actually think he made the least worst option doing this because obviously we had to ring fence the future. And I don't think without this 20 million pounds to run the club, we administration wouldn't have been off the cards for next season. Um, it's that stark, so I think it's bought us another season at least, possibly two. But then after that, it's bleak, it really is. Um, it's scary, uh, and we're staring into the abyss, which is why. What we're trying to do is work with the governance of football and trying to work with politicians, etc. to try to make our voice heard because it's all well and good going on marches and protesting outside grounds and stuff, but the actual real way you make change is try to get in touch with people that can make a difference. And that's what we're trying to do a bit differently to other people. As I say, I'm not saying they're wrong. It's just a different avenue that we've chosen to go down.
0: Alistair, that's all we've got time for for now, but it's been great chatting to you. And obviously, yeah, thanks again.
2: Thanks again, guys, for the opportunity for, for letting me come on. I really appreciate it. And thanks a lot. It's a great
0: podcast. Well, thank you. Uh, we could spend hours talking about this, I'm sure. But we'll come back to you later to play Simon Grayson's Hateful Eight. In the meantime, just tonight, we're going to head around the grounds and we'll begin with Cardiff, who have sacked manager Mark Hudson after just four months in charge. The news came not long after they drew 1-0 with Wigan. Ben James is from the Cardiff podcast, View from the Ninian. Ben, what's your reaction to the sacking?
3: On a personal level, um, I'm really sad. He's a club legend, club captain was involved in the club when we got promoted who was you know there during some of the best times I've known at the club um you know league cup finals all that kind of stuff um but I'm not surprised he's been sacked uh, you know as much as everyone wanted him to do well like I said you know we, we we all thought he was the right idea at the time he'd been at the club he'd been involved in the coaching setup been involved in bringing all the players to the club that we signed in the summer but it just hasn't worked for him as a manager I think he's won four games in about 18. Um, he's. We're not scoring enough goals. We look defensively frail. We don't look like we've got any creativity in the team, and it just it 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 just wasn't working. That's the long and short of it, really. And it's a shame, but it was that, or we keep him in charge and we we slip further down the table. So I think the club had to take action, and and they did what they did.
0: Well, I'll ask the obvious question, Ben, which is, who do you think Cardiff should get in next, and what kind of manager do you think they should get in next?
3: It's kind of like the million dollar question, really, because ideally we'd like to bring someone in who's going to come in, be there for the long term, instill a way of playing, instill an ethos in terms of recruitment and and set things up and, and and be there for the next four or five years. Someone I'd like to see, like Stephen Schumacher from Plymouth. But it's clear that the club don't want to give someone that uh, amount of time. And, and the situation we find ourselves in at the moment is that we're staying relegation um down the barrel um we're we're not scoring enough goals and the talk this week has been someone like Neil Warnock might be coaxed out of retirement to come back in so you know it's we need someone who's going to lead us to safety this season but then also take us on for the long term um I don't know who that is we've kind of tried all the options at the moment we've missed out on people like Robert Edwards Neil Critchley because we went for someone like Hudson we're not an attractive proposition for anyone at the moment because we're broke, still slightly under a transfer embargo, and we're in dire straits. So I really don't know who comes in next.
0: Yeah, and Cardiff have now become the fifth championship club in the last six or so seasons to sack two managers in a season, and which is pretty impressive considering we're only just past halfway in a season. But I think that speaks a lot about the chaos behind the scenes, doesn't it, Ben, and I don't have much confidence that Cardiff will get this appointment right. Do you?
3: In a word, no. Um, we, we've seen over the last few years how we've lurched from manager to manager since Warnock's gone. We went from Warnock to Harris. We thought Harris was the man who was going to change the way we played football. He, he lasted a season or so. Uh, then we brought Mick McCarthy in, went back to that short-termism. Then we brought in um, you know Steve Morrison from within the club. Thought we were going to change the way we did it this summer by giving him that long-term approach, ripping up the way we played, bringing in all those players, signal the different way of playing. And then we got rid of him after sort of 10, 12 games. Hudson came in because we couldn't afford to hire someone else. I think, frankly, the, the only faith I have in the club at the moment is that we'll probably appoint Dean Whitehead as our next manager because he was within the club. He was hired by Hudson and that seems to be the way we do it. I think the hierarchy, you know, there's, there's a million things to say about the hierarchy, but frankly, they're a joke. They're showing how badly they're running this football club. And I just have no faith in them running a a business, a football club or, or, or appointing the next manager.
0: Cheers, Ben. Justin, I don't know how I feel about this sacking because Cardiff are playing poorly. They're not getting wins. But at the same time, I don't think continuously sacking managers is going to help things. It's two managers sacked already and we're only just halfway
1: through the season. It's bizarre, isn't it? It's, well, it's not bizarre, actually. It's, it's absolutely predictable for a club who has no idea what it's doing off the field. Um, they're a rudderless, directionless club. Um, and I think I think a lot of it is symptomatic of the fact that they've not had anyone, any real football people in there. And I know that's a bit of a cliche, but when you consider the fact that um, the, the transfer strategy over the years has been... I don't know what it has been. Under Neil Warnick, it was signing experienced players experienced pros and it worked for a, a period of time but those experienced pros then get older and we saw that big um, big turnover in the summer um, and there has been a, a semblance of putting something new into it um, but unfortunately the same symptoms are present under Mark Hudson then, uh, uh, as they were under Steve Morrison because the club doesn't have enough attacking players it's not been put together or well, the squad hasn't been put together with a proper side of play in mind over a period of time we've just seen a load of players dumped into a squad um, and Steve Morrison has had to put something together, and Mark Hudson has had to carry that on. Um, yeah, the, the, the club's ownership has no idea what it's doing, which is which is why it's been allowed to get to this point um, where they're on the cusp of being in a relegation battle, on the cusp of the um, the third tier. And unfortunately, potentially with a transfer embargo as well, I have no idea where they go from here. It's, I mean, who in the right mind is going to take this job? Really, who who is going to want this job?
0: I've got a lot of sympathy for Hudson because this squad is just not very good. I've been shouting it from the rooftops now for a long time, but to expect a manager to get a tune out of this team in his first job was always going to be difficult and that's proved to be the case this season for two managers now. They've got some good defensive-minded players, but very, very little going forwards and whoever comes in has got their hands full and it will need... A proven, They will need a proven record of getting players playing above their level to make it work. Cardiff have got the transfer embargo lifted, but it doesn't look like they can afford to bring in many players anyway. So the new manager looks like they'll have to work with what he's got. And that's a big problem. They also don't have a lot of money to splash out on getting the right man in. So their hands are somewhat tied in that respect. It's a very, very concerning time to be a Cardiff fan. And I, I'm just sat here wondering where does the club go next because in terms of how the club's being run it's only going in one direction isn't it but it seems as if Cardiff have an idea for this se- this season anyway and that idea involves pressing the Warnock button that's right according to TalkSport Cardiff are actively exploring the possibility of getting Neil Warnock out of retirement
1: to be fair Justin
0: if Cardiff wants to stay up I, I suppose he fits
1: the bill doesn't he Well, he does. He ticks all the right boxes, but I thought we were past that. And I love Neil Warnock, but just let the man rest. Let the man enjoy his his retirement. And if I'm Neil Warnock, why would I take this job? Why would why would I take this job? Because this team, unfortunately, is on a it's just on a one way ticket down to the third tier. It's on the one way ticket down. I'll tell you why.
0: Warnock obviously has a great relationship with the Cardiff fans. Maybe he feels like he's got something to owe them. That's what I think Cardiff fans
1: will be saying. Absolutely, and I think that's a very valiant way of looking at it. But unfortunately, Warnock doesn't work for the fans. He works for the owners, and the owners are just absolute tripe. They're not, they're not someone you want to work for. And I think Vincent Tan's. I read some comments from a um, an interview back in November. Vincent Tan's already sold Neil Warnock down the river. He's already criticised his transfer strategy, um, and I just don't. I just don't think Neil Warnock would have the motivation or energy to want to try and turn this around because there's a lot wrong with this team and I think it's going to take a lot more than the nuclear option to turn this club around um, and unfortunately I, I, it's bigger than Neil Warnock at, at this point um, and I, I think unfortunately the clubs put themselves in a position where they might not be able to attract that someone who's retired someone who's over 70 and retired it's just a, a damning situation
0: Well, his experience at this level is unparalleled, isn't it? His record is just ridiculous at this level. And he's got a good record of leaving clubs in a better position than they already are. And that may very well be the case at Cardiff again. But having said that, maybe he has had enough now. And maybe he'll be looking at this and thinking, why? Why would I bother? So. I don't know. I I don't know if this is the right way to go down. It may very well keep Cardiff up this season. But in the long term, the problems are still going to persist because Vincent Tan will still be the owner. They'll still be losing millions upon millions each season. The club will continue to be going in the wrong direction. And ultimately, the destination they seem to be going towards is League One. And I don't think that's going to change no matter who this new manager is, unless it's an unbelievable appointment, but considering their recent record, I don't see that being the case. A quick word on the game, Justin, and for Colo Torres, Wigan, they definitely deserved a point here. It's just a shame it took until the 95th minute for it to come.
1: Yeah, absolutely. They they, they, showed, um, they showed their quality in the game in periods, um, and it's a really important result to try and stop that rot, because the run of results they've had has been appalling. Defensively, they've been appalling, and I think this is probably the perfect game they could have had, where they come up against a Cardiff team who are struggling to create chances, uh, struggling to open teams up, and that probably alleviated the pressure on Wigan a little bit defensively, meant they could play the game a little bit. Granted, it was heading to uh, a point where uh, they were leaving it late, but I think... I think this hopefully should serve as a, a bit of a building block for Torre to try and build on those solid foundations and go again um, in the next game. And I think as well, Wilkie getting on the score sheet again. He's got 10 for the season now, which is an astonishing turn around I think try and build that attack around him and they should be fine. Well, it should be fine. They should try and... Comp- they'll be more competitive, I should say. I was going to say, I'm not sure they're fine, <laughs> considering they're rock bottom at the moment still, and this is their first
0: point in something like five games, yeah. but a, a huge point, it's got to be said, and a quick shout out as well for Callum Robinson at Cardiff, played in this game despite apparently being struck down with about a flu so bad that he lost six kilograms, Jeez, which is incredible, that is a really bad bout of man flu into it, so fair play to him. <laughs> um, David Wagner could not have wished for a better start in his first league game in charge of Norwich. They won 4 0 away at Preston. Norwich were incredible in that first half. 3 0 up after
1: 27 minutes. Just wow. Blue pressing away. It got quite simply, blue, blue pressing away. And I think we saw a lot of what we expected to see from this Norwich team. And I don't want to say it was a bit more like the Farker era. Um, but in a way it was, there was intensity, there was aggression, there was, they were clinical. It was just quite so, I, I, probably not the same as the Fark era, but it was so far away from what Dean Smith was putting out that it felt like it was, the, the, the good times were back at Norwich. Um, but yeah, it was such a dominant opening 45. I think, as I say, that, that ability to be tenacious and aggressive and press, press it and keep them pinned back um, was uh, was a breath of fresh air from this Norwich team because we haven't seen that at all this season. That was probably the most complete 45 minutes we've seen from them for a long time. Um, so it was good to see and I think um, it gives yeah it gives Norwich a a building platform. Um, it's just at home form but I think this type of performance will certainly give the fans confidence in Wagner and hopefully get, be- get behind the team create a positive atmosphere at home which should see them turn around their form.
0: It's got to be said that Preston were very sloppy. I don't think... Mm any team will have completed more passes in the opposition box than Norwich did here. The <laughs> number of times Preston just could not deal with it. it. was ridiculous. Every time they cleared it, it was just another wave of a Norwich attack and Preston didn't really have an answer for that. But I said before that this Norwich team does not need adding to, despite calls from supporters for them to bring in, I don't know, five or six players over this transfer window. This was a perfect showcase of how good this Norwich team can be when everything clicks. And it certainly did that here. Timur Pukki looked like a man unleashed in this. Under Dean Smith, he's not looked like the same player at all. Still grabbing a few goals, but here he looked like the Timo Pukki of old. And then Max Ahrens relished being able to get forward more. He really had the shackles taken off him in that respect. It was an immense performance. I wasn't convinced about Wagner's appointment. I'm still not, if I'm being honest. And I don't think that's going to change after just one win. But you can't deny how impressive Norwich were here, especially compared to how bad they've been recently. Ryan Lowe said, there's no excuse for Preston's performance. I didn't see it coming. We fancied ourselves. I can be outclassed by quality players. I just can't be outclassed in running and fighting and really having a gutsy display and determination. We didn't show any of that. He wasn't a happy man and I can't imagine Preston fans are too chuffed with what they've seen at Deepdale this season, just in fourth straight home loss. Only three teams have picked up fewer points at home this season than Preston. How?" can a team be so much better on the road than they are at home Justin? I think they've nearly picked up twice as many points away from home this season than they have at home it doesn't make any sense to me
1: yeah they've got the third best away record in the division which is quite bizarre considering how poor they are at home um, but as you say I don't know if it's just how they set up but at the same time I think um, the way they play games they probably they, they are a, a decent out of possession team um, which may suit away games better but at the same time they're coming up against teams at home who, um, you look at that Millwall game um, where they lost 4-2, not possession-based team Millwall, but they were more clinical, they were more aggressive. Um, it's just that inability to match teams at home. It's so bizarre, but they can do it away. I don't know if it's a psychological thing. It's it's something that's worth tapping into in a little bit more detail. But as I say, just just that inability to match the intensity um, in that first half an hour killed them. Ryan Lowe alluded to it, you alluded to it. Um, and it's yeah, it's quite shocking. And as well as that, the the worry for me, I know they signed two forwards, but it's just relying on two inexperienced forwards. I think they did miss Chad Evans a little bit, but at the same time, you expect better that midfield battle was lost as well. Really disappointing. Um and I can see why Preston fans are frustrated. I've seen quite a few want him to want Lowe to be sacked, which is quite bizarre. But um yeah, I don't I don't see why that should be the case. Um, because he's done some good. But I think it just highlights that the need for a little bit more quality in that team. Maybe it's because Ryan Lowe, we, we've always associated
0: him with this attacking style of play, we haven't really seen that this season, but away from home, maybe he's got more of an excuse to be a bit more in your face, whereas mm-hmm. at home, he feels like he's got to be a bit more, I don't know, a bit more sensible, maybe. I, I don't know, it's it's very strange when a team is so much better away from home than they are at home. I can't really put my finger on why that's the case with Preston in particular, but Maybe that's something Ryan Lowe has um, really got to look at himself for as opposed to pointing the fingers at anything else. I don't know. Justin Peach picked Blackburn to beat Rotherham as his banker of the weekend. They duly lost 4-0. The Justin Peach curse continues, (laughs) ladies and gentlemen. No (laughs) correct predictions now for four preview episodes. Justin, you do realise when you pick a banker, you're picking the team who is guaranteed to win in the Championship this weekend. I think pretty much every favourite won in the Championship this weekend
1: apart from the one you picked. (laughs) Well, that's not my fault, is it? That's just the way the universe has worked this weekend. Let me say this: rather than having that was Robin's first win since the World Cup break, um, they've been absolutely horrendous. You've said that they've been the worst team in the championship yep. um, since, um, yeah, since that international break. And Blackburn are coming into were coming into this game on the back of two clean sheets and two wins, which is, in my money it's going to make you a heavy favourite. Now, I didn't expect Ben Brereton-Diaz's other half to go into labour um, at this point, uh, at the point of ma- uh, recording the preview. So maybe Double there's up. a bit of blame there. Um, but You're but blaming yeah. Ben Brereton-Diaz's yeah. partner. <laughs> I- I'll point the finger at her. Um, but I will say as well, the Rotherham fans have given me sticks since. No one commented on it before. I've actually seen a lot of Rotherham fans say they didn't see that result coming, which just goes to highlight just how much of a surprising win this was and how they did upset uh, the odds a little bit but it was a dominant performance not taking any away from Rotherham but no one saw that coming I'm not sure it was a dominant performance to be honest Justin I think the scoreline did flatter
0: Rotherham a bit their first three goals from outside the box including one directly from a corner everything (laughs) just went in it was quite a strange game in that respect and I suppose Blackburn now know what it's like when the shoe's on the (laughs) other foot in that respect Uh, having said that it's hard to make much of an argument for Blackburn deserving anything because they didn't create too much and missing Ben Brarrant Diaz won't help with that of course but you just have to look at the table to see their grip on a playoff place is becoming very very loose six losses from nine games now and I'm not sure what more there is for us to say Justin on Blackburn because we've been predicting Blackburn to drop off and it's continuing to happen right before our eyes and it's not down to us being anti-Blackburn or anything stupid like that that's just not the case they're just not that good and you just don't you don't stay that high in the table do you when you're producing the second fewest shots per game in the division and facing the eighth most in the last nine games they haven't produced more than 10 shots in a game I can't recall too many successful sides who are doing that regularly, not having a vast amount of shots in a game. So they're on the slide. And I think question marks need to be raised about John Dahl Thomason and why his teams aren't more active in front of goal, because that's what's killing Blackburn.
1: i would be critical here. Um, And I'm not going to mention any data because I know Blackburn fans will get irate if I mention XG or um, any of the stats that you mentioned. This was purely eye test and I've had quite a few opportunities to now watch Blackburn this season but I'm not coming away from games thinking wow they've been incredible here. They've been efficient in, at times defensively, they've been efficient in um, being clinical in front of goal and their game management has has also been quite good but they have had to rely on individuals, teams do that anyway, they, you, do, you have best players for a reason um, but there has been an over-reliance. I mean wasn't the case in this game with Kaminsky throwing the ball in the back of the net for that corner but That remains to be seen. Um, But what what I have an issue with under Thomason is this team lacks any personality whatsoever. It's bland. Um, There's just nothing that excites me, unfortunately. Um, And this is as as critical as I'll probably be a Blackburn this season. And we, we will praise them when they win games, but they're not consistent enough to sustain a playoff place. They're not resolute enough. They've got absolutely no character to turn leads around. Uh, yeah, to turn those deficits around when they go behind. rather than won that game after 33 seconds to, uh, yesterday. Yeah, um, As soon as that goal goes in, Blackburn are not getting back into it because there's no history of them doing it this season. It's as simple as that. And until they do that, they don't give me any confidence that they can be a playoff-chasing team. Um, and as I say, under Thomason, they remind me a lot of um, Philip Coccu at Derby, where it's, it's a lot, there's a lot of possession... But there's no oomph there's no excitement in the final third and I know there's not a lot of quality in that team but there's a lot I think it's a good I think it's a good enough squad to at least be doing something more exciting more interesting but there's nothing there really is nothing and um, they will will, no, no danger of going down or being sucked into a relegation battle but if things persist next season will be very ugly for them
0: Well, let's make no mistake about it. It is a huge,
1: huge win for Rotherham, who have
0: been absolutely shocking recently. This result really came out of nowhere. Let's move on to Middlesbrough, where a lovely goal from Marcus Four made it. Four wins on the trot for them. They beat Millwall 1-0. Not a game for the ages, but Middlesbrough, not slowing down for anyone,
1: are they? I think it was quite an impressive win from Borough, from mainly from the perspective that Millwall set up to make it very awkward and difficult for for them. And it asked different questions that I don't think Carrick has come up against yet. Um, and granted, they weren't at the full-flowing best. They weren't at the creative best best either. Um, and it probably did highlight that maybe they do need a um, an extra midfielder in there just to add a creative element in these tight games. But... I think they showed enough to to come away with the win, and I think that that goal was quite well worked with with force. And it's a very good setup, obviously. Akpum as a number ten, Force when he is playing on the right hand side, and obviously Crooks as that as um, that number nine. And you know, once Archer's up to speed, he adds a different dimension. So there's still a lot more to come from this team, but I think this game in in particular, yeah, Millwall set up to frustrate. Um, Borough, they did that successfully and it was a tight game, um, but Burrow came away with it and I think it shows the momentum and character that um, Carrick's instilled into this team. Not a lot to take away from it in terms of what they did, but yeah, just that ability to keep on winning, keep the clean sheet as well is a massive, massive plus. I think it was
0: a bit of a different game for Middlesbrough because mm-hmm. they had to really dig in towards the end of this one, didn't they? Not Not something they've had to do too often during this winning period and that's because they've been most pretty comfortable in most games haven't they but I think this was a sign that Michael Carrick knows how to get his team to do the dirty work as well and that's always very promising when a manager is willing to do that as well someone who is, does deserve to shout out for Middlesbrough in their winning form is young Hayden Hackney in midfield just 20 years old has been ever present in this Carrick team he sets the tempo Brilliantly, and is so calm in possession for a young lad, and he's positive on the ball, but isn't afraid to stick a foot in either. When you've got a player who's young but is willing to be positive with the ball as well, instead of you know just passing it sideways or have you, that's always good to see because he's brave and uh, willing to try and make things happen. Mm. And I wonder if Carrick sees a bit of him. <laughs> in young Hackney because he, he does play a bit like him, doesn't he? Um, so yeah, a young Michael Carrick in that respect. Uh, seeing him nail hit down his position as a first team is always great to see and hopefully he continues to just get better and better because he has played a really, really big part in Middlesbrough's great form and doesn't look like he's going to be you know out the team anytime soon, whatever happens. So yeah, he's had a really good rise. Over recent weeks, Middlesbrough up to fourth, but this win now, remarkable when they were on the edge of the bottom three when Carrick took over. No shame in losing this for Millwall. Middlesbrough, very good side, aren't they? Although, Millwall's away form is a big cause for concern. Hint, only three teams have picked up fewer points than them on their travels, and it's killing them,
1: isn't it? It's going to be one of those things that needs to get sorted quite quickly. There are a lot of teams, like Preston, for example, whose home form's terrible. Luton's home form isn't great either. Um, there are a few teams that need to tidy up their their form and have it a little bit more, we'll balance it out a little bit more because that's going to be the difference between finishing in and out of the top six is is ensuring you know the games that you do lose away from home, tight games like this from from a Millwall perspective, you turn into draws. Um, but I think more or less performances like this will will pick up results away from home because I think it was a solid enough performance. They created chances as well, just didn't have that clinical edge that uh, that Middlesbrough found. It was a it was a fine margin sort of game, but yeah, certainly a, a good enough performance. But I think, yeah, improving that away, performance, uh, away form is going to be the key to Millwall breaking into that top six because there's always something that lets them down. Um, each season is always something that lets them down. Unfortunately, this season it's, might well be their away form. I think it will be their away form, Justin. I was having a look
0: back at past seasons and last season's playoff sides were all in the top six yeah. for how good their away form was. It was the same the season before. The season before that, Cardiff were the only team Outside of the top six for away form, and they were ninth. Whereas Millwall now sit, I think, twentieth or twenty-first for away form. You've got to be consistently picking up points home and away; otherwise, you will fall short. And I think that's what's going to happen with Millwall this season. Unfortunately, it's been a problem for quite a while now, stretching back to last season. It's now eleven wins from thirty-nine away games, and. If they were managing to nick a point more often than not, then maybe it wouldn't be as big a deal. But seven losses from 13 on the road this season, that is bad. And the thing is, the strangest thing of all is statistically, they're actually quite good away from home in terms of XG and shots. So I think they're just lacking that composure. And maybe the lack of home support has something to do with that. I don't know. But you've got to sort out the away from. Otherwise... They've got no chance yeah. of getting in the top six. Justin, let's take a quick break. After that, we'll talk about another win for Burnley and another win for Sheffield United. <laughs> Shock. Welcome back to the second tier podcast. It's now seven straight league wins for Burnley. The latest coming in a 1-0 win at home to Coventry. 11 wins from 12, Justin. It just gets more and more astonishing. But the truth is they had to work for this one, didn't they? Coventry, very resolute, as you'd expect with a very good manager and Mark Robbins. But
1: some sides are just so strong that no matter how hard you try, they find a way through eventually. When you've got depth like Bernie do and quality like Burnley do to to be able to change games, um, it helps massively. I think the introduction of, of Goodmanson was was a huge uh, a huge contributing factor. He asked a lot more questions, especially with delivery and crosses into the box from the left hand side, um, and it and it just helps when you, as I say, when you've just got that quality, um, you're going to be knocking on the door. And I think it wasn't a great performance by any means. I thought Bernie were quite sloppy, lacked composure in possession, um, but. As we always say, when you've got momentum, um, and and when you are a good team, you find a way to win. And they did that. They did that, and it's from it was from a set piece as well. Um, Coventry were were worthy of something from the game, but unfortunately, didn't have the quality that um, that Bernie had, and that's the difference in the budgets, unfortunately. Yeah, well,
0: it's a fair point to make, of course, mentioning the budgets, but at the same time, um, Coventry deserve a lot of credit, don't they? And mm-hmm. maybe it's a bit it's a bit of a shame for them to drop a point so late in the game. I don't think they were expecting anything heading into it, so the performance will definitely be encouraging, especially now it is full without a win. But they can definitely take a lot of credit heading into a big game against Norwich at home next week. But it was Jordan Bay who got the winner for Burnley, and he's not someone we've spoken about yet, I don't think, Justin. He's he's looked a very good player on loan for Borussia Mönchengladbach this season, and he, he's been one of the... Well, one of the keys to their success this season has really been the partnership between Bayer and Taylor Harwood Bellis. It's been absolutely formidable, and it? You've got Harwood Bellis who's the ball player out of the two. But Bayer still very capable with the ball at his feet, as you'd expect, in a Vincent Company system, but he's just a he's just a good all round defender and those two are very capable of dealing with whatever came their way, despite them being two young lads. I think Harwood Bellis is twenty and Bayer's twenty-two, which is you wouldn't have expected them to be that young if you didn't know it. Um, you'd have thought they would be two experienced lads. Uh, and it just makes it all the more of a shame that Howard Bellis is now going to be out for a couple of months with injury, but it didn't look like it bothered Bayer too much in this game. And if I was Vincent Company, I'd be calling up Gladbach and saying, how much? Because <laughs> it's safe to say, now they've got one eye on the Premier League and getting Bayer in permanently will be a good start to prepare them for life in the top flight again, won't it? And I think as well, I think I'm thinking right insane saying Bayer's actually played plenty of games for Gladbach a couple of seasons ago in the Bundesliga. So mm. he's got that top-flight experience, despite, as I say, him only being 22. So, yeah, definitely one I'd be getting on the top of the shopping list if I was Vinnie Kumps. But Burnley <laughs> remained top of the championship. Now 16 points clear of third place, which is just a remarkable gap at this stage in the season, isn't it? Sheffield United 3, Stoke 1, another game where... I wasn't too convinced with United, but they've still managed to win, and this has been a bit of a running theme recently, hasn't it?
1: I think when you've got a few players off it, but you've got quality in a team and a, a you know a style of play where the foundations are built on pressing opposition into mistakes. There's probably not a better team to come against. Come up against in Stoke when they're a team that lack composure, um, and you show, and it showed with the goals that Sheffield United scored. I think the second goal, um, Bogle. Um, well, I mean there was five or six players around Josh Laurent, uh, for example, pressing him into an avenue he couldn't go down. Ball was nicked from him. Bogle drove in, fortunately with the goal, but it's a goal nonetheless. And the first goal was well worked as well. Um, they're just a well-drilled team, even if they aren't playing up to. Up to the scratch, up to their best. They're well drilled enough to to grind games out, to to press opposition, to make it uncomfortable for them. You look at Ollie Nord in this game, for example. Probably his poorest game that I can remember. Anyway, he wasn't at his anywhere near his best. He was giving away possession, short passes, long passes. He just was, wasn't wasn't quite clicking for him. And I think obviously that will be symptomatic of 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 why Sheffield United maybe weren't at their best either. But find a way to win, you've got good plays, you find a way to win and you've got a good style of play, it helps massively. Um, I think it's just a kudos to Paul Hackingbottom to get the team set up in this way because as you say, as I've said, um, it's just it's just all about being well drilled. They're now 11 points clear
0: of third place so despite their performances being a bit iffy recently, they're still getting the wins and that's all that matters ultimately, isn't it? One team not getting the wins is Stoke who are now 20th and four points above the bottom three and I don't know about you, Justin, I've never really thought of Stoke of being in serious danger of actually going down this season. I'm starting to wonder whether I should be reconsidering that. What about you?
1: I said not too long ago that I would be worried about them being dragged into a relegation battle, but I think we both agreed on them having enough quality to not be relegated or at least not to be sucked into a relegation battle. But I do think the teams below them have improved their squads significantly. Um, Whereas Stoke are just in this I don't know why they're not. uh, I've not seen too many links with players. Obviously, Liam Dillac has been recalled by Manchester City and sent to Preston. They're probably a weaker side than when they came into the January transfer window. And that's a side that are not doing very well at all. Um, And I think that's just, again, you've got to point the finger at the the hierarchy for not being able to recruit with any semblance of a plan in mind about how to play uh, or or what side of play they want to put out um, and how they fit players into that. It's just it's just terrible recruitment over the years that's led to this point. And I think my worry is if Alex Neal's failed to get a tune out of this team from the end of August to now, why is he then going to suddenly get a tune out of them from now until the end of the season? Why will things drastically improve for them? They've been one of the worst teams in the division. The points points and performances show that. Why will it drastically improve? It won't. And that's not Alex Neal's fault. The players just aren't good enough or there aren't players there fitting into a style of play that Alex Neil needs or any manager needs over the years um, I am worried about them um, being sucked into a relegation battle I might even have concerns about them being relegated it's it's really really poor at the moment and as I say it just comes down to them uh, Alex Neil being able to get a tune out of them when he hasn't so far well, I think they're definitely in a relegation battle
0: at this point aren't they judging by where they are on the table <coughs> the thing I keep telling myself is there are three worse teams than Stoke and that may ultimately prove to be the case however They've been gradually moving closer and closer to the bottom three for quite a while now. And I think that's because where other teams have been going, you know, 10 games or whatever without a win, Stoke have been getting a win every four games and then losing the rest. There just hasn't been any consistent results Mm. all season, has there? There hasn't been a an even slightly consistent period of good form. And that's why they've perhaps gone under the radar a bit of being in trouble they shouldn't be in trouble though really there are a lot of players in this team who would be getting into top half teams but are playing so below par for Stoke it's unbelievable Alex Neil as well he's a good manager at this level a very good manager at this level yet he can't seem to get a tune out of this team it's, it's bizarre really so will Stoke go down I don't think so but (laughs) having said that I can't see any signs of improvement on the horizon so I can't say no for sure Justin. Just
1: the the amount of uncertainty in your voice then I think with Stoke City everybody I think everybody gets complacent with them you always assume they're 14th 13th they're in around the top six and you look at the table and go oh Christ actually they're they're quite perilous here this isn't great and you look at past form of performances and creating chances and converting chances um, and keeping chances out they haven't been good enough and this isn't down to Alex Neal, it's not Alex Neal's fault. The squad is just not packed with the right players to play a certain style of play. It's just mashed together. So it's literally it's been a 10-year-old in FIFA putting that team together, I swear. It's, it's just it's not good enough. Um, and you've got to point the finger upstairs. Nothing's going to change until there is structure at this football club. Watford 2, Blackpool nil.
0: A lot to like. With Watford here, particularly from the new signings, Matthias Martins and Ishmael Kone both had really good games. Martin, who's the young Brazilian who's come from Fluminese, came on at half-time, completely changed the game. He looks a really exciting player. He does a very direct, nippy, happy to run with the ball, played a part in both of the goals too. I'm excited to see more of him. Ishmael Kone looked lively in midfield too. He's a young Canadian who played at the World Cup for Canada. Watford needed to bring in players in January. There's no doubt about that. These two looked very exciting. New additions in this. It's only a short cameo, really, that Martins had, in it's only ninety minutes for Kone. But
1: don't need to bring in more. But I think this was a very promising start for those two. wasn't it. It's amazing how it can transform the um, just what, not necessarily optimism, but transform the uh, transform the opinion or uh, perception of this Watford team because. When I think of Watford, or I have thought of Watford over the past sort of five or six months, you know, the players that have come to my head are the likes of Craig, Craig Cathcart, Dan Gosling, Tom Cleverley, players who are way past their best in the twilight of their careers, maybe on their last, you know, sort of good contract before they start to drop down the leagues or even retire. Now there's this injection of excitement, and we, sh- and it showed with the. the um, uh, with some of the passages of play when, the, when these players were introduced, Kone paying that ball over the top for the penalty for Martins to run onto, really good run from Martins. Um, for example, Spreer having a good role in that um, in the first goal as well. Um, obviously, Martins had a shot for the first goal. It's just a complete transformation of perception of that Watford team, and I think if Billich can get get them going, get them confident, and maybe protect them a little bit, they are young players. I think this, this could be a very good second half of the season for Watford. Probably still a few players short from mounting a, a, a you know, maybe from being a really, really good side. Um, but it's a really good um, starting place for this Watford side, especially, as I say, going into that January transfer window. Not really sure what they're going to be doing, but just a few players later, definitely, definitely transformed. Yeah,
0: I, I'd agree with that. Always helps as well when Ishmael Asar has one of those games. He had his <laughs> quiet moments, but then all he needs is just a couple of moments of pure brilliance where he comes alive and just makes things happen for Watford. A word for 17-year-old Toby Adameo as well, scoring on his first game of professional football. I've never seen a player look so happy but also so shocked to have scored. It was really heartwarming to see his face when he just did not know what to do with himself. (laughs) It's 10 league games now without a win for Blackpool and... I've seen some fans calling this a shambles, which I think is very over-the-top, Justin. They've lost away to a club who were in the Premier League last season with a budget which just isn't comparable to Blackpool's. Not every defeat is a shambles, is it? Sometimes you've just got to accept that the other team is stronger than you, but without a doubt, Blackpool definitely need to get some points on the board, don't they? Bristol City got just their second win in 11 games by beating Birmingham 4-2. A huge win for Nigel Pearson and Bristol City, who had the shadow of of relegation looming larger and larger over them. This has managed to create some breathing space in that respect. Antoine Semenya, in particular, was excellent. I don't really know why he's not been playing regularly for Nigel Mm. Pearson, but I suppose Nigel Pearson does what (laughs) Nigel Pearson wants. (laughs) Birmingham have had a very worrying drop-off in recent weeks, haven't they? Not long ago, they were eyeing up the playoffs, but four straight losses. They've dropped down to 18th. Six points clear of the bottom
1: three. How worried are you about them, Justin? I'm not. I'm not worried about the um, going down. I think it just maybe tarnishes a really good sort of first three four months of the season for John Eustace, and I think it it does highlight the lack of quality in that squad. If you look at the, the forward options, uh, I said a few weeks ago that it's you know there's you know it's industrious defence with a lot of composure and flair in the middle with an industrious forward line, but I think that whilst it has its positives also has its negatives as well. Lack a little bit of final quality in the in the final third, and I think as well as that defensively they do need better options, and I think you know, betting in those new signings that they made earlier on in the window is going to help a lot, but just the worrying thing for me is the amount of goals they conceded over the last four games, aside from that whole game, 3-0, but um, conceded 3 to Burnley, um, obviously f- uh, 3 to Borough and 4 to Bristol City it's a little bit uncomfortable, I think if John Hughes just can tighten them up again um, and, and go again I think that's the, the, the route forward, but not too worried about them going down, not worried at all about them going down, there are worse teams than them, but it just uh, just tarnishes a really good start to the season for Eustace. Well,
0: it is quite obvious where the problems have come from, isn't it? And you're absolutely right, Justin, it's conceding goals. They had only conceded 20 goals in 22 games. And I think that was the, or one of the, best defensive records in the Championship. They've now conceded 13 in the last five. That is a very worrying contrast. Earlier in the season, they were solid, resolute, and they could rely on them creating just enough chances up the other end to get by and win enough games to see them you know, climb up the table. That's not been the case recently, and injuries haven't helped with that. But when the drop-off has been as drastic as this has, that's when the alarm bells start ringing for me. Also worth mentioning how poor Birmingham have been in the second half of the season in recent years. Mm. I'm hoping that doesn't actually mean anything, but it's a worrying trend to keep in mind because... Last season in particular was a really good example of how they were mid-table in the first half of the season, then just nearly collapsed into relegation in the second half of the season. So is that going to happen again this season? Who knows? I don't think you can really rule it out, yeah. even though I'll accept that Birmingham have got some very good players and in terms of squad are probably better than at least three, well, definitely better than at least three teams in the Championship, we'll have to wait and see. Swansea 1-3-1 away at Sunderland. An impressive result, but maybe not so impressive when you find out that Sunderland had Luco 9 sent off after just 18 minutes, a crunching tackle. That one, Justin, although maybe it's not too surprising with... Mister O nine, Mowbray said after the game that Swansea are the worst team to go down to ten men against for the majority of the game, and he's absolutely right. And see, once you lose a man, you're not getting the ball back off Swansea, who will just pass you to death, and that's ultimately what's happened in this game.
1: Yeah, it's it's always a frustrating one, especially with the the game where it was at the point where O nine was sent off. Um, obviously, I think the situation actually. Was made worse at the fact that the Sunderland players just stopped after Diallo was allegedly fouled in the box. I don't think he was fouled, it was nothing, it was a nothing challenge. Um, but the Sunderland bet, players just I, stopped. I think Luke Nine wish he stopped. Well, exactly. <laughs> I think he, was, he literally just absorbed everybody else's energy in that press and just went straight through Oli Cooper, bless him. Um, yeah, I think he <laughs> overstepped you know, the mark on the uh, Chittal spectrum, didn't he? It was mad. Um, really, really bad moment from him, but um, yeah, it, that was the ultimate turning point in this game. and, yeah, Swansea are just going to pass you to death they're going to make the pitch as wide as possible they're going to play it from side to side and you could see that final 20-25 minutes Sunderland went knackered um, and I don't think there are many teams who can get you to that point especially when you've got 10 men They're young side as well Sunderland which won't be helpful so yeah red card changed the game I think with 11 men it would have been interesting to see how that game turned out Yeah, it would have been a really good
0: game, actually, wouldn't it? Because both teams play some really nice football, both aiming for the playoffs. But unfortunately, that early sending off just kind of ruined it, didn't it? There were two braces at the Medeski Stadium as Reading and QPR drew two all. Jeff Hendrick with a beautiful daisy cutter from 30 yards out and then scored the other one virtually on the line. And then Tyler Roberts popping up with two himself. I think he only scored one prior to this game. He's had a bit of a frustrating season, hasn't he? But a very timely brace for him. Reading were 2-0 at half-time, but in the end were left clinging onto a point towards the end of the game after QPR managed to pull it back. Paul Lynch was saying after the game that Reading should have had a blatant penalty for a tackle on Shane Long, and that it was an absolute joke that that decision wasn't given. Which I've seen
1: the I've seen the incident, Justin. I do not think that was a penalty at all. I I can't remember it, so it's clearly not a source of controversy from my point of view, and I'm usually one who sits on the fence with those sorts of decisions, aren't I? So I definitely would have thought about it in a little bit more detail. I, I genuinely I I can't recall the, the incident but um I mean Ince tries to deflect. It was a they they gave the game away. Um and he's just trying to deflect uh frustration I think to, to something else. But unfortunately I think the frustration should be lied at the lack of control in that second half yep
0: I would agree with that and finally Hall 1 Huddersfield 1 Hall scored an equaliser in the 98th minute which caused some marvellous scenes at the KCOM Stadium now it's time for this Yes, it's time for the news. And Cardiff's transfer embargo has been lifted by the EFL. It's after the club paid the first instalment of the 15 million pound transfer fee for striker Emiliano Salah, who died in a plane crash in 2019. Cardiff had refused to give the money to Nantes and were given a transfer embargo for three transfer windows. But they've now paid the fee, which is reportedly around seven million pounds. It's good news in terms of being able to bring in players again. But I wonder how much of an impact that will have on the financial rigour room they have for bringing in players though we'll have to see how that pans out over the transfer window speaking of that let's move on to transfers Preston have signed striker Liam Delap on loan for the rest of the season from Man City He has been at Stoke but has struggled by all accounts scoring just three goals Justin now he's left Stoke I can see him scoring goals for fun he
1: doesn't have the Stoke curse hanging over him anymore it's, it's a strange one isn't it um, and we always go on about it just being really strange that play I mean Dwight Gale for example goal scorer at Championship level has gone to Stoke and he's absolutely poor he's terrible Yep. Um, it's it's bizarre and I completely agree with you I think he will score goals at Preston I think he will get a service which is the most important thing because he just didn't have that at Stoke he will get a nice stream of goals you've got Robbie Brady's left foot for example it'll be a good learning curve for him under Ryan Lowe Ryan Lowe was a goal scorer himself which I think will be massively helpful um, and I think it's a good move from from all parties it's just a shame it didn't work out for Delap who was uh, you know by all accounts working for his dad mm, yeah it's strange when you consider <laughs> it like that I mean Tom
0: Ince at Reading is working well under his dad isn't he? but there you go <laughs> um, it's going to be interesting to see how he does because obviously he's low on confidence after <laughs> that Stokes spell. I think that's understandable and Preston's loans seem to go one of two ways you either have the Cameron Archer, which is obviously fantastic, it was amazing last season, and then you've got Troy Parrott at the under end as a scale. Where's yeah. the lap going to feature it on that? It doesn't seem to be in the middle ever, it just seems to be one or the other. So uh, I'm, I'm interested to see how he does at Preston, particularly because it was an exciting signing when he signed for Stoke, wasn't he? yeah. He's one of the most highly thought of young strikers in the country, but it's not worked for him. in Staffordshire, so hopefully the move up north will uh, suit him good. Meanwhile, Ched Evans has signed a new contract to keep him at Preston until the end of next season. Anthony Knockiart has joined Huddersfield on loan from Fulham. He had been be playing in
1: Greece for Volos. Certainly an interesting one, Justin. I I saw a tweet, and I can't remember who tweeted it, but I generally was howling, and it just said, Huddersfield will piss the league... in 2016. Because of the signings they yep. made. And it's it's so true. I, I, I'm i actually quite interested by this Nokia signing because he's got a point to prove. He I've, I've I've read his interview and he wants to get his career back on track and enjoy football again. And I think if you've got a player, um, a bit like Tom Ince last season with Reading, um, who you know is a very, very good footballer, Nokia's record at Championship level prior to his move at Fulham was astonishing. Um, if you can get even 30% of that into this Huddersfield team, you know it gives them, gives them a chance um, so I'm interested to see or I'm intrigued to see how it works out and I hope it works out for him because as I say really really good player to watch before his Scott Parker ruined him I think you're being a lot more optimistic than I <laughs> yeah. am about it because I think Antony Knockiard's form
0: is a, well his his good form <laughs> is a long distant memory it's been a long time since we've seen the Antony Knockiard that was tearing up for Brighton and Leicester that player seems to have been gone and while it's it's an interesting signing for Huddersfield i
1: i'm not expecting big things but hopefully he'll prove me wrong last two managers over there marco silva was chris houghton obviously on his on loan at forest and scott parker probably two of the worst managers you want especially chris houghton post brighton to get the best out of a player of knockouts quality so maybe fotheringham can, can tap into something i don't know he's not really showed much lately but i'm i'm hopeful I'm optimistic you're very optimistic (laughs) for a lack of
0: evidence I'll give you that Huddersfield have also signed Martin Waghorn on a deal until the end of the season good side yeah a very good side in 2016 (laughs) you're absolutely right QPR brought in Jamal Lowe on loan from Bournemouth he actually came through QPR's academy as a youngster and says it feels like he's come full circle I think this could be a big piece of the puzzle for QPR, Justin. First of all, the thought of an attacking trio, including Chair, Willock and Lowe, just sounds good as it is, doesn't it? There's a lot of technical ability in there. And I assume he'll be playing up front for them, which initially I was a bit sceptical about. I've always thought Jamal Lowe would be better as a winger and QPR being a bit wasteful this season. I was thinking, is Jamal Lowe really the answer to that? But having looked further into it, last season he was the second most clinical forward in the division. And the season before that, he was the 20th. So it turns out, actually, a lot more deadly in front of goal than I'm certainly giving him credit for. And you've got Elias Cherry as the best chance creator in the division this season. So someone being on the end of those chances who can score will be hugely significant for QPR. So I'm really excited to see how Jamal Lowe does for them this season. Burnley have signed centre-back Amin El-Dakil from Belgian side saint Trundis for an undisclosed fee the 20-year-old signed a three and a half year deal played most of their games this season while looking into this one Justin I became fascinated by some of his teammates they've got former QPR defender Tony Leisner Shinji Okazaki and most incredibly of all Shinji Kagawa that, wow. that is, that is. You talk about you know teams who have been good five years ago. Then wow, that's a that's quite a team, isn't it? Uh, anyway, let's move on. Watford's signing of 19-year-old Brazilian Matthias Martins has finally been confirmed. The deal had been delayed due to a work permit, and you may remember, remember Justin that we discussed this deal before and Watford hadn't disclosed whether they'd signed him from Fluminese or whether he's gone to Udinese and signed for Watford on loan. Well, it turns out it's actually the latter. He's on loan from Udinese, but... Very murky at the time. Blackpool have <laughs> brought in former Norwich midfielder Tom Tribal on an 18-month deal. He was key to helping the Canaries get promoted in 2019, so it looks good move, that. Stoke have sold goalkeeper Joe Bursic to Club Bruges in Belgium. Rotherham have loaned in Leeds defender Leo Helder. The 19-year-old is the son of ex-Forest defender John Olaf. So there you go. Jonathan Leckos left Birmingham to go to MK Dons. And final bit of transfer news. Coventry have given a new contract to youngster Josh Eccles, who will keep him at the club until 2027. Todd Kane has left Coventry to go to Charlton. Now, there's been loads of injury news over the past few days. I will talk about some of them with you, Justin, but we really have to move on. Burnley is set to be without defender Taylor Horwood-Bellis for the next couple of months after getting injured in the FA Cup last weekend. Really sad news. Been one of the if not the best centre-half mm, yeah. in the division this season. Emil Reese Jakobsen's season is over. The Preston striker suffered an ACL injury, so he's going to be out for a long time. We wish him the best in his recovery. Bristol City youngster Tommy Conway is going to be out for a while as well. He suffered a bad hamstring injury, although it's not been confirmed how long he's expected to be missing for. And in the final bit of news, commentary have confirmed new owner Doug King as their executive chairman. A club statement said he will take on the role with immediate effect, working alongside the existing senior management structure structure now it's time for the polls this is the part of the show where we give the listeners three questions on twitter because we want to get their thoughts on everything to do with the championship first question we asked was this are burnley and sheffield united as good as promoted yes or no (laughs) yes (laughs) easy yeah it's remarkable that we're saying it i keep saying this it's remarkable that we're saying it at the start of the new year but can anyone really see anything different at this point? It will take a phenomenal collapse and a phenomenal bit of form mm-hmm. from another team for anything different to happen at this point. Into 83% of people said yes, 17% said no. Which of these teams is most in danger of going down? Birmingham, Bristol City
1: or Stoke? Birmingham, Bristol City or Stoke? Stoke,
0: yeah, easy one again for me. I'm not sure. I don't think any of those three teams will actually go down. I think there's three worse teams than each of them. Mm-hmm. But if yeah. I if I had to pick one then I'm I'd probably say Bristol City just because I've not really been too convinced for them for the longest time now but I think all three of them may find themselves yeah. in a similar position coming the end of the season 44 percent said Stoke, 34 percent said Birmingham, 22 percent said Bristol City and finally, which do you use in the shower to clean your body shower gel or soap?
1: It's the same thing maybe no,
0: it's not. Soap just, is in, like, Dove, and then shower gel is, I don't know, links Africa.
1: Who, under the age of 50, uses a bar of soap now? I think you will be surprised. Hmm. It's sh- I also use shower gel, but soap, no, no one uses soap.
0: Well, that's turned out to be the case in the poll as well. 13% of people said soap, 87% use shower gel. Shower gel, it seems to be... I sound so old when I say this. It seemed to be quite a re- relatively new thing. I, d- I
1: don't know. I can't. I can't, can't remember. Yeah, I can't remember when I started using shower gel. It, uh, it just seemed a normal thing. It's just one of those things you just don't think about at all. My
0: parents still use soap, but I, it it, make, it smells funny to me. It smells like old people. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> now it's time for this.
2: Hi, Simon Grayson Edge.
0: Yes, it's time for Simon Grayson's Hateful Eight. Welcome back to the show. Alistair Jones from Action for Albion. So I'm going to ask the boys here to name eight of a certain subject. All they've got to do is work together to name all eight. So for example, if I were to say name Steve Bruce's last eight clubs and Alistair would say West Brom, that's one down. And Justin would say Newcastle, that's another down. What if Justin would say Weymouth, then he'd be out. So what you need to do, chaps, is give me all eight answers without all of you being eliminated. So there's Only two of you usually play this with three competitors, um, for the lack of a better term. And with that being the case, we'll give you an extra life. So if you get one wrong, you've got another go afterwards. And since you're here, Alistair, I thought we'd make it a West Brom-themed question this week. I want you two to name for me the top eight goalscorers for West Brom in the Premier League. I'll give you a clue... Five of these players are strikers. There's one defender in there. And yep. the minimum number of goals they need to to score to be on this list is 15. So we'll begin with you, Alistair. Can you name me one of West Brom's top eight goal scorers in the Premier League? Yep, Adam Winge. Absolutely. He's West Brom's top scorer with 30 goals over three seasons. That's one down. Justin, your go.
1: This is this is bleak for me. Uh, my, I think West Brom's years of mediocrity is not helping me out here. Sorry, Alistair. Sorry, 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 sorry criticism, but yeah, um, I'm going to have to go with, oh Christ, um, Gareth McCauley. spot on.
0: Fifteen goals he got. Always loved Gareth He was a good bet for goaling, uh, for scoring goals in the Prem. That's two down. Ali, your go. Uh, James Morrison. Correct. He is number two with 29 goals over nine Premier League seasons. Absolutely, You know it out
2: right. don't you, mate? <laughs>
0: <laughs> Do you know them all?
1: Oh, I've got a fair idea. <laughs> That's three down then. Justin? I feel like I'm going to waste a life. Um, I'm trying to think back to the Brian Rosson years. Um, uh, Robin Shaw is... I should make it a, a, a face not to go with Robin Shaw. Carnu... Um, <laughs> Jesus Christ, that's oh, an, an awful no. <laughs>
0: shout. <laughs> At least Bob Earnshaw would have been a shout with a bit of credit, but Carney's an awful shout, Justin. <laughs> that means you've lost your extra life. Ali, it's your go again. You
2: need to think of longevity of who played, and he's actually in the top 10 assist makers, or was up until the, the whole of the Premier League uh, era, and that's Chris Brunt. He yeah. would third?
0: Correct. Yep. 24 goals over nine Premier League seasons. Probably all free kicks. Yeah. Uh, that means you're halfway there. Justin, you're going,
1: oh, this is a disaster.
0: Um, you're so out of your depth here, aren't you? <laughs> I am.
1: I just hope that we've not played this since before the World Cup break either. Um, so my ability to handle but the think, pressure think is just Think, completely
2: of, a, think gone. of a really top-tier centre-forward that we had. Um, and he was oh, my God, God yeah. Cheers.
0: Cheers. Lukaku. <laughs> Correct. 17 goals in one season for West Brom. That means you've got three remaining. Ali? Oh, I don't know this one, but i guess maybe Shane Long. Correct. 19 goals over three seasons for West Brom. He is the sixth top scorer. Uh, just in two remaining. Both of you still in. Uh,
1: nice. No, this is terrible. Um. I'll uh, I'll have to throw in Robin Shaw. Sure. I'm I'm struggling. I'm I'm tapping out, I think. Yeah, I thought Robin Shaw
0: would have been a good shout, but unfortunately he's only got twelve and you needed fifteen yeah. to be on this list. So Justin, you're out. That means it's down to Ali. You've got two remaining mate. Yeah. I'm
2: struggling. I'm trying to think of strikers that we've had that were half decent. That's a bit of a struggle. After I don't wing you really, to be fair. Um Fortune. Fortune for eight is
0: a good shout but unfortunately he's only got 10 goals oh, and he right. needed 15 to be on this list unfortunately. Uh, so that means you've fallen foul to Simon Grayson's Hateful Eight this week, gents. Uh, the players you were looking for, Salomon Rondon, oh, Rondon. 24 yeah. goals, yeah He was at West Brom for three seasons I did yeah, not think he was right, there yeah. for that long
2: He was at West Brom for three seasons but under Tony Pulis he was only in the postcode of the rest of the team <laughs> about twice <laughs> <laughs>
0: And then the other player you were looking for, a bit forgettable, but you will kick yourself, was Saido Barahino. Oh,
2: yeah. well, Less said about him, the better, (laughs) eh?
0: Yep. Uh, 23 (laughs) goals he fired in. 14 in one Premier League season. It all all went so wrong eventually, didn't it? Well, there we go, ladies and gentlemen. This has been the Second Seat Podcast. Thank you for listening wherever you are. On the show this week, we've had Ali Jones from Action for Albion, the West Brom protest group. Ali, thank you for your time today. Cheers, guys. This has been the Second Tier Podcast. We'll be back again on Thursday. I've been Ryan Dilks.
1: I've been Justin Peach.
0: And a big thank you for listening.